Good morning. We're in James chapter 4, verses 7 to 17, and today the focus is on submitting to God. Some pretty powerful verses today. So I'll just pray and we'll get into it. Father, thank you, Lord, that we have the opportunity to study your word. Lord, it's so exciting, it's so powerful, but it hurts. It reveals to us who we are as our sinful nature is. And Lord, it is not pretty. But Father, you invite us to stand before the mirror and you show us those imperfections. And then by your grace, if we humble ourselves, you change us to become like you. And you're inviting us to submit ourselves to you, humble ourselves, and then you will lift us up. You will change us to become like you. And so you're inviting us to become a part of that process day by day. And so we just pray that we can respond, Lord, and we can draw near to you. With clean hands and a pure heart, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So what's the only cure for sinfulness and worldliness? It's grace. Yeah, that God gives grace. Last week we talked about that word but and how it contrasted who we are to who God is. Before we keep going, I want to quickly talk about God's mercy because God's mercy is linked to God's grace. So what is mercy? Well, mercy is not receiving from God something bad that we do deserve. So we don't receive the penalty of sin that we do deserve. We all deserve to be punished for the times that we have broken God's perfect moral law. But, of course, Jesus took our punishment instead. So how is grace different to mercy? Well, grace is receiving something good from God that we don't deserve to receive. It's like getting a Christmas present. We receive his unmerited, undeserved and unearned favour. So I just thought this morning before we get into James that we could have a look at some of the things that God gives us that we don't deserve and just so we can have a grateful and thankful heart. So the first one there is justification. That simply means justified, never sinned. It's the forgiveness and right standing we have with God. We have eternal life. That's the privilege of knowing God, of being in relationship with God. And that starts the moment a person is saved. You can see John 17 verse 3. We have the power to overcome sin. The old man or sinful nature or our human nature has been rendered powerless and it cannot control us anymore unless we let it. And you can see Romans 5, 17 to Romans 6, verse 14 and also 1 Corinthians 10, verses 12 and 13. And then there's sanctification. It's the process where we become changed or we are changed into God's image. God changes us. We don't change ourselves. God changes us. All we have to do is make ourselves available to be changed, to humble ourselves as we're going to read about today. We also have adoption into God's family and we have become royalty. We are sons of the king. Sons and daughters of the King, Ephesians 2.19 and Romans 8.14-17. And then there's glorification. And the older we get, I think the more we look forward to this, we get our new bodies. 
yet. And 1 Corinthians 15:35 to 56 talks about that. So one of the main themes or contrast running through the book of James is the contrast or difference between what it looks like, feels like, and sounds like to be dominated by a sinful nature and then what it looks like, feels like, or sounds like to be controlled by the Holy Spirit. So it's the difference between how we think, speak, and act as to whether we're controlled by the sinful nature or the Holy Spirit. And we want to produce the fruit of the Spirit. And last week we also looked at the fact that the only way to overcome the sinful nature is to ask for help, to ask God for his grace, his favour, his help, his power, his strength and his desires. And this is all undeserved, it's all unearned and unmerited, but he gives it to us when we ask, that's what he wants us to do. And the only restriction that God places on us for receiving grace is what? We must come humbly, that's it. We must come humbly. Now, what stops us from humbly asking? What stops us from coming to God and receiving this? Well, it's pride. Pride stinks. Pride is the attitude that thinks, I can do it on my own. Why do I need God's help? I'm going to do what I want to get what I want, when I want it and how I want it. <laughs> now, outwardly, we don't say that. No one goes around saying, I'm going to do what I want to do. I mean, some kids might, but hopefully as adults we're growing out of saying that. But on the inside, sometimes that's our attitude. And how do we know if that's our attitude? Well, if we're not praying and we're not asking for help, guess what we're doing? I'm doing what I want, when I want it, how I want it. And I can do it because I'm big and strong enough and smart enough. I don't need God's help. If we're not praying, we're not depending. We're not asking for his help. We're not seeking him. We're not being led or empowered by the Spirit. And how much time we spend seeking God's will is a good measure of how much we actually trust him and are depending on him. So how much time we spend seeking God's will is a good measure of how much we actually trust him and how much we are depending on him. So what's the problem with living according to or being dominated by a sinful nature? Well, if we are living according to our sinful nature, we're driven by motives that are opposite to God's. Our old nature is proud, selfish, full of sinful desires. God is completely humble, selfless, and perfect in every way. So when we are operating or being led by our sinful nature, when we are depending on our own strength, guess what? We are thinking, speaking, and living like Satan and not like God. We are not in a place we can receive God's grace and his blessings. Instead, we receive his loving but painful discipline. As Hal Lindsay once said, we put ourselves in the divine woodshed, you know, get a spanking. And the way I look at it is like this. God destroys the pride in us so that the pride won't destroy us because pride kills our relationship with God. So discipline is a very painful process, one that is best avoided. And how do you avoid it? Well, choose to humble yourself instead of putting yourself in positions where God must humble you himself. And the other thing that we've talked about last week is our motive for repentance is our love for God. And remember that when we sin, we hurt him more than it hurts us. Because as we talked about last week, if a relationship is broken, 
the one who has more invested in the relationship is the one who gets the most hurt. God has more invested in us than we have in him. He loves us more than we love him. And so his hurt is greater when our sin separates us from him, even if it's just on a temporary basis. So let's read James chapter 4. And going from verse 1 all the way through to 17, just to get the context. So where do wars and fights come from among you? Do they not come from your desires for pleasure that war in your members? You lust and do not have. You murder and cover and cannot obtain. You fight and war, yet you do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask amiss, that you may spend it on your pleasures. Adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think that the scripture says in vain, the spirit who dwells in us yearns jealously? But he gives more grace, therefore he says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And this is where we pick it up today. Therefore submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Lament and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy into gloom. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he will lift you up. Do not speak evil of one another, brethren. He who speaks evil of a brother and judges his brother speaks evil of the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law... You are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is one lawgiver who is able to save and destroy. Who are you to judge another? Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a city, spend a year there, buy and sell, and make a profit, whereas you do not know what will happen tomorrow. For what is your life? It is even a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, If the Lord wills, we shall live and do this or that. But now you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. Therefore, to him who knows to do good and does not do it, to him it is sin. So, today, the main focus is submitting to God. What does it look like? Well, surrender. (laughs) And this is where and how we have victory over the devil and our sinful nature. And it only happens when we choose to humble ourselves and submit to God. So, let's get into it. James 4 verse 7, Therefore submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. So, I don't know if you heard this before, but where you see the word therefore, you ask what it's there for. So, this is a logical conclusion of the argument that James has been making. It's our natural response to what has been previously stated. So, what argument or point has James just made? Well, let's go back to verse 6. It says, But he gives more grace. Therefore, he says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So what do we need? Grace. How do we get it? We have to be humble. How do we be humble? We have to submit. So therefore, verse 7, submit to God. Because grace is only offered to the humble, there is only one thing to do to receive God's grace. Submit to God. 
This means to make Jesus Lord, ruler or master of my life, to surrender to God's kingship over my life. And like Jesus in the garden, he said, not my will, but your will be done. And it's only when I have the attitude that I will start to receive the benefits of his reign in my life. Now, why should I submit to God? This can't be a forced thing. No one can force us to submit to anyone. Spurgeon has a quote. If God were a tyrant, it might be courageous to resist. But since he is a father, it is ungrateful to rebel. And that made me think, you know, we don't want to submit to our government leaders sometimes because they don't have our best interests at heart a lot of the time. And we do that really because we have to. You know, we do it because God says we have to. But with God, it's different. It's very different. God loves us. And what he is asking us to do is actually for our benefit. And he's doing it with the motive and the genuine love for us. And he's demonstrated his love and concern for us beyond any doubt when Jesus died on the cross. So what it means when we rebel against God is that we're being ungrateful and hard-hearted and selfish. Why are we ungrateful, hard-hearted and selfish? Well, sin. Hebrews 3.13 You must warn each other every day while it is still today so that none of you will be deceived by sin and hardened against God. So sin will harden us against God. We will become ungrateful, hard-hearted and selfish towards God if we continue to sin. So here are some reasons why we should submit to God with a grateful and thankful heart, a willing submission. Remember, God is seeking a willing submission. He wants us to willingly submit to him. So we should submit to God because he created us, he owns us. We should submit to God because his rule is good for us, it's beneficial, it makes life better for us in the long run, especially eternally. We should submit to God because all resistance to him is futile. You're not going to beat God, so don't even try. His will is fixed. We should submit to God because such submission is absolutely necessary to salvation. You realize that's what a person is doing when they are saved, is they are submitting to God's rulership over their life. We should submit to God because it is the only way to have peace with God. We are no longer his enemies. We are now at peace with him. We should submit to God because it is the only way to experience the peace of God. So this is different. This is now once we're saved, we can now experience the joy of abiding if we obey. We should submit to God because it is the only way to be free from the power of sin and the devil. And I've shared previously that it's just ridiculously stupid to try and defeat sin and conquer sin and overcome the things in your life on your own strength. Now, this verse begs the question, if I'm not submitted to God, which is what James is asking us to do, then who am I submitting to? And Spurgeon has a great quote. So he's answering the question, 
If I'm not submitted to God, then who am I submitting to? Spurgeon says this, I desire to whisper one little truth in your ear, and I pray that it may startle you. You are submitting even now. You say, not I. I am Lord of myself. I know you think so, but all the while you are submitting to the devil. The verse before us hints at this. Submit yourselves unto God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. If you do not submit to God, you never will resist the devil. And you will remain constantly under his tyrannical power, which shall be your master, God or devil, for one of these must. No man is without a master. Good <laughs> day. Verse 7 says, Resist the devil and he will flee from you. So to escape the effects of our sinful nature and the strife it causes, we must also resist the devil. And this is impossible unless we are first submitted to God. And it's actually impossible not to resist the devil if we are submitted to God. Because we're thinking and doing things God's way and not Satan's way. So we are either submitted to one and resisting the other or vice versa. Now, the word resist comes from two Greek words, stand and against. And so basically, we are to stand against the devil. Now, how many years do you have to be a Christian before you can submit, resist, and Satan will flee? How mature do you need to be? <laughs> Look, the moment you are saved, you have this authority in you and as long as you're submitted to God, even the day you're saved, the minute you are saved, as long as you're submitted to God and therefore resisting Satan, Satan is forced to flee. Now, another thing that people might say is, and he will flee from you, but he comes back. Satan always comes back, right? Remember when Jesus was tempted? The Bible says that he left Jesus to come back at a more opportune time. So, basically, we have to continue to submit. We have to continue to resist. And Satan will continue to flee. And a famous Christian writer named Hermes wrote, The devil can wrestle against the Christian, but he cannot pin him. So God allows Satan to wrestle with us, but he will never pin us. Let's go to verse 8 through 10. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Lament and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and he will lift you up. So, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. It's an invitation and a promise. The invitation is for us to draw near. The promise is that as we do that, God will draw near to us. And Clark says, When a soul sets out to seek God, God sets out to meet that soul. So that while we are drawing near to him, he is drawing near to us. And that reminds me of the, the parable of the prodigal son. The father is always out there looking down the road, waiting for that prodigal son to start coming home. 
And as soon as he starts coming home, what does the father do? He runs to meet him. That's the picture here. So drawing near to God is what follows after we have humbled or submitted ourselves to God. It is the evidence that we have truly submitted ourselves to God. So Spurgeon suggests a few ways of how we can draw near to God. It means to draw near in worship, praise, and in prayer. It means to draw near by asking counsel of God, spending time with God. It means to draw near in enjoying communion with God. It means to draw near in the general course and tenor of your life, just that general abiding, just walking in the will of the Lord. Now, going off topic a little bit, there's this whole thing about the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. The Old Covenant says, stay away, keep out. It's got to be, you know, keep out danger sign on the front. If you come in, you'll die. Basically, if a high priest could only go in once a year, one person once a year, and with sacrifices. But here, I've got a quote from David Guzik, which um, explains the difference. In one way, this text illustrates the difference between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. In the Old Covenant, God told Moses not to come any closer to the burning bush and take off his shoes. Under the New Covenant, God says to the sinner, Draw near to me and I will draw near to you. Now the ground between God and the sinner has been sprinkled with the blood of Jesus and we can come close to God on the basis of that blood. So we are free. We are invited to come. What does Hebrews say? Come boldly to the throne of grace to find help in time of need. So draw near to God and he will draw near to you. This phrase, this verse, reveals God's heart to us. And this is really important for me anyway. What does God want most? For us to be good? For us to achieve a certain standard of righteousness? For us to you know, do certain things? No. God wants us to love him. That's it. He saved us so that we could be restored into a love relationship with him. That's the fundamental reason as to why God went to so much effort and endured so much pain and agony. God was reconciling us back to himself. So 2 Corinthians 5, 18-21, Paul says, And all of this is a gift from God, who brought us back to himself through Christ. So in the Garden of Eden, the relationship was broken. Through Jesus Christ, we have been restored, reconciled. And continuing in 2 Corinthians, And God has given us this task of reconciling people to him of making enemies friends. That's what reconciling means. For God the Father was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. So it wasn't just Christ dying on the cross. It was God the Father in Christ reconciling the world to himself, no longer counting people's sins against them. And he gave us this wonderful message of reconciliation. So we are Christ's ambassadors. God is making his appeal through us. We speak for Christ when we plead, come back to God. For God made Christ, who never sinned, to be the offering for our sin, so that we could be made right with God through Christ. So, what we're going to see in the rest of the chapter, and what we've just read, is the results of drawing near to God, of submitting to God, and resisting the devil. 
we know that we are really drawing near to God if we are resisting the devil, mourning and sorrowing over our sin, we are becoming pure in the way we live and think and speak, we are speaking well of other people, we are thinking of eternal things, and we are enjoying sweet communion with God on a regular basis. Sometimes we can think we're more spiritual than we really are. We can convince ourselves that I'm doing well in my relationship with God. But here's a bit of a checklist. A bit of a, uh, you know, going to the doctor and he takes some tests. Verse 8 says, Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Lament and mourn and weep. Now, if you go to a room in your house and the light is only on very dimly, can you see the dirt? Can't see the dirt, can you? But when you turn the lights on really bright, you can see all the dust. You can see the footprints, the finger marks on the windows and the walls and whatever. That's what it's like when we start to draw near to God. The light of God's word makes us more aware of our personal sinfulness. His perfection, his glory, illuminates who we really are. Our sin is exposed. This causes conviction of sin. We become convicted of our sin, our impurity, our double-mindedness, and it brings sorrow to our heart, and so we mourn over and confess it to God. And what do we do then? We seek his forgiveness at the cross. And we also seek his strength so that we can change. We repent and change. And Hebrews chapter 4, verses 12 to 16 describes this process. So Hebrews 4, 12 to 16, For the word of God is alive and powerful. It is sharper than the sharpest two-edged sword, cutting between soul and spirit, between joint and marrow. It exposes our innermost thoughts and desires. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God. Everything is naked and exposed before his eyes. And he is the one to whom we are accountable. So there is what the word of God does. We draw near by spending time in the word of God and letting him reveal himself to us. And we begin to realize, well, I'm not the person I thought I was. But then, what do we do? Do we run away and say, this is too much? No, what we do is we run to God. We run to Jesus. We draw near. So then, since we have a great high priest who has entered heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to what we believe. This high priest of ours understands our weaknesses, for he faced all of the same testings we do, yet he did not sin. So let us come boldly to the throne of our gracious God. There we will receive his mercy, and we will find grace to help us when we need it most. So when we are spending time in the Word of God and taking the time to let him speak to us and meditate on the Word, we will become aware of our sin. But what God wants us to do is not become discouraged, but rather emboldened to go to his throne and to deal with that sin. We don't want to you know, go to the mirror and forget what we look like. We want to go to the mirror and allow God to change us. Now, the terms lament and mourn and weep, they're used a lot in the Old Testament about repentance. So what James is really saying here is you need to repent. And the Jews that James is writing to would have 
understood what he was talking about. So I'm just going to read one of those Old Testament references. It's Ezekiel chapter 6, verse 9. Then when they are exiled from the nations, this is the children of Israel, they will remember me. They will recognize how hurt I am by their unfaithful or adulterous hearts and lustful eyes that long for their idols. For us it's the world. Then at last they will hate themselves for all their detestable sins. So this idea of mourning, loathing our sin, this is what happens when we spend time in the presence of the Lord. Then at last they will hate themselves for all their detestable sins. So when James is saying, lament and mourn and weep, this is gross. I don't like who I am. I want to change. I'm going to go to God and ask him to help me. So these passages accurately describe what repentance both feels like and looks like. So what does repentance feel like? Well, it's godly sorrow, a humbling of ourselves, mourning over and hating sin because of how it breaks our relationship with God and so breaks God's heart. And what true repentance looks like? Well, it's a changed heart. A changed life, a surrendered life, a pure life, a person growing in the love for the Lord, a life controlled by the Holy Spirit. And the verses that explain this more is 2 Corinthians 7, verses 10 to 11. It says, For the kind of sorrow God wants us to experience is godly sorrow. So I'll read that again. Notice it says, For the kind of sorrow God wants us to experience. Did you hear that? He wants you to experience this sorrow. Why? Because it leads us away from sin and results in salvation. There's no regret for that kind of sorrow. But worldly sorrow, which lacks repentance, results in death, spiritual death. Just see what this godly sorrow produced in you. Such earnestness, such concern to clear yourselves, such indignation, such alarm, such longing to see me, such zeal, and such a readiness to punish wrong. You show that you have done everything necessary to make things right. Now this is in the context of church discipline where they had that man committing sexual sin. But we can apply this to ourselves. Am I doing everything necessary to make things right? Because godly sorrow will produce this desire in me to make everything right in my life. So what are some other reasons why we might change, which are not true repentance? Okay, It's really important to know the difference between true repentance and non-genuine repentance. So some people change to avoid the practical consequences of sin. They don't want to get a speeding fine, they don't want to go to jail, don't want to lose their job, whatever. Some people uh, modify their behaviour to protect their reputation as a good person or as a Christian. I don't want people to think badly of me, so I'm not going to do that. It's got nothing to do with God, about loving God or concern for God. It's just all about themselves. Selfish. And to avoid the pain... Our bad choices will cause us, so we can lose a job, etc. And another reason is to get something we want. So a person may say, I'm sick of being poor, but I can't get a job until I get off the drugs, so I'm going to get off the drugs so I can get a job. It's not repenting of using drugs. It's really just one selfish thing being more important than another selfish thing. So these are all what I just read there, are non-genuine reasons 
to change and they will not result in a humbled heart. Instead, they result in a harder heart and that's what I mean by spiritual death. Now verse 10, it says, Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and he will lift you up. So the best way to explain what this means is to go straight to the words of Jesus in Luke 18, 9-14. Jesus spoke this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself. (laughs) I love that. Who's he praying with? Just himself. God's got nothing to do with his prayer. God, I thank you that I am not like that other man, or like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this tax collector. Remember the tax collector is standing just a little ways over. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I possess. And the tax collector, standing afar off, would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified. What does that mean? Just if I'd never sinned. Right with God, declared innocent, yeah? Rather than the other, the Pharisee, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. So, what do we need to do for God to lift us up? We need to humble ourselves. And the principle here is that the more we humble or lower ourselves, the more God can raise us up. Why? Well, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Remember, God's kingdom is an upside-down kingdom. This world tells you, you do whatever you need to do to get what you want. It encourages, it applauds pride. And people are out there and they're just lifting themselves up and putting other people down so they can get ahead. But God's kingdom works on humility. And what happens in God's kingdom is that we become lower to become higher. Now we move on to some application in James chapter 4, verses 11 to 12. It says, Do not speak evil of one another, brethren. He who speaks evil of a brother and judges his brother speaks evil of the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is one lawgiver who is able to save and destroy. Who are you to judge another? Now, this is pretty simple. Do not speak evil of another. The word in the Greek is, do not gossip. It just means to talk about someone behind their back, whether it be true or false, it's information that's going to damage that person. They're not there to defend themselves. So, If we are truly humbling ourselves, one of the evidences of true repentance, of lamenting and mourning over our sin, is that we will be in right relationship with other people, and that will show in the way we talk about them. We won't be gossiping or judging our brother. Now, why is speaking evil or gossiping so bad, so evil? Well, James 2 verse 8 talks about the royal law that we should love one another. It's not loving one another, it's hating. 
And second, and this is really important, we take the place of God when we judge others. Something that we have no authority to do. We cannot condemn other people. This word judge is used in the sense of condemning. Remember, the law condemns us. Verse 11 and 12. He who speaks evil of a brother and judges his brother speaks evil of the law and judges the law. There is one lawgiver, so who are you to judge another? Oh, I'm no one. I have no authority to judge or condemn anyone else. And what does this look like? Well, to judge another here is to have this attitude of being critical, harsh, unkind, and being fault-finding. If we are looking at other people in that way, that's what we're doing. That's what this means. We're judging other people. Now, the next application is in verses 13 to 16. And I've titled this, Humility Causes Us to Depend Upon God. So come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a city, spend a year there, buy and sell, and make a profit. Whereas you do not know what will happen tomorrow. For what is your life? It is even a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we shall live and do this or that. But now you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. Therefore, to him who knows to do good and does not do it, to him it is sin. So we'll start at verse 13. You who say, today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a city, spend a year there, buy and sell and make a profit. So, why is this a bad thing? Is planning, making plans a bad thing? No. But it is if we're doing it independently of God. Our pride makes us think that we are clever enough and strong enough and have enough resources to run our own lives without seeking God's help or God's guidance. And I reckon, at least I know I am guilty of doing this to some extent. What does humility do? What does drawing near to God do? It causes me to seek His will and not do things off my own back. Verse 14 says, You do not know what will happen tomorrow. And we don't, do we? Nobody knows what tomorrow holds. And yet we all have this tendency, a a human nature tendency, to think that we can plan our own future, that we can do our own thing, and that everything's going to be all right. We can so easily fall into the trap of overestimating our own strength, intellect, and resources. Only God knows the future. So it's so much better, I believe, and obviously, to trust in and be led by the one who holds the future in his hands. And a note from Spurgeon here. Notice that these people, while they thought everything was at their disposal and used everything for worldly objects, what did they say? Did they determine with each other, we will today or tomorrow do such and such a thing, for the glory of God and for the extension of his kingdom? Oh no, there was not a word about God in it from beginning to end. So that's the whole point here. It's just about doing it for yourself. People, you know, they're chasing bank accounts, they're chasing big superannuation accounts, so when they can retire, they can buy the caravan and the four-wheel drive and go travelling. And, you know, it's just basically, they're not thinking heaven, they're thinking material stuff. 
and I like to ask him when they're financial planning. So, so you're good. You're retiring. Great. You got enough money to buy a caravan and you forward drive. So you can do that for ten years, and then what? Oh, 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 yeah, that the retirement home. Yep, we've got a really nice place booked. It's, it's fantastic. Okay, so what about the next stage? <laughs> you know, what happens after that? Help them to think a little bit further ahead, because everything they've wasted down here, they cannot take with them. So it's not wrong to plan for the future, but just remember to humbly ask the Lord for His wisdom and guidance as we make our plans, so that His plans are our plans. Now there's the concept that our life is like a vapour. Have you been driving and there's been like a fog in the morning and then the sun comes up and then the fog just disappears? It goes, it's just, where did it go? It's gone. That's our life. I like to think of it as our life has a use-by date. And none of us knows what a use-by date is, you know. We know the use-by date in the milk. It gets past the use-by date and throw it out, you know. This body has a use-by date. Psalm 102, verse 11. My life passes as swiftly as the evening shadows. I am withering away like grass. You know you're all dying, don't you? Sorry to be so pessimistic this morning, but your mortal body is dying. Jesus tells a parable, I like Jesus' parables, Luke 12, 16-23. Then Jesus told them a story. A rich man had a fertile farm that produced fine crops. He said to himself, what should I do? I don't have room for all my crops. Then he said, I know, I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones. Then I'll have enough room to store all my wheat and other goods. And I'll sit back and say to myself, my friend, you have enough stored away for years to come. Now take it easy, eat, drink and be merry. But God said to him, You fool! You will die this very night. Then who will get everything you work for? Yes, a person is a fool to store up earthly wealth, but not have a rich relationship with God. So I'll read that verse 21, Luke twelve twenty-one. Again, yes, a person is a fool to store up earthly wealth, but not have a rich relationship with God. And then continuing in Luke 12, then turning to his disciples, Jesus said, That is why I tell you not to worry about everyday life, whether you have enough food to eat or clothes to wear, for life is more than food and your body more than clothing. Now verse 15 gives us the opposite of doing things according to our own plans and desires. It says, instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we shall live and do this or that. Paul modeled this really well. So some examples from the life of Paul. Acts 18.21, Paul said, I will return again to you, God willing. 1 Corinthians 4.19, but I will come to you shortly if the Lord wills. And then the last one is 1 Corinthians 16.7. I hope to stay a while with you if the Lord permits. And so you can see how Paul is submitted to the will of God. He's putting this into practice. So verse 16, it says, All such boasting. That's what we're doing, isn't it? We're boasting. 
I can do this. Look at me. Look at what I've achieved. You boast in your arrogance. And the word arrogance there, as a quote from Moffat, he describes this as the characteristic of the wandering quack, you know, the old snake oil salesman, the guy who goes around giving false hope to people that he can heal them. That's what it's like when we make our own plans. We're like a quack. That's what this word is saying. You boast in your arrogance. You're boasting in your quackiness. (laughs) Yeah? You're saying things that you cannot bring to pass. David Guzik says, It is nothing but sheer arrogance that makes us think that we can live and move and have our being independent of God. This boastful arrogance is the essence of sin, a proud independence, the root of all sin, as was the case with Lucifer and Adam. Now, the last verse, a tough one. Sorry to leave you this one. (laughs) But you have to be faithful to teach the whole word of God, yeah? So James 4.17, Therefore to him who knows to do good and does not do it, to him it is sin. So it's far easier to think about and talk about humility and dependence on God than it is to actually live it. That's the fact. It's far easier to think about and talk about humility and dependence on God than it is to actually live it. But now we know these things, we are accountable to do them. One of the main themes of the book of James is this. Our faith is proved by our actions or works. And the repeated phrase that James uses is, faith without works is dead. Faith without works is dead. And we talk about it, the way I talk about it, to explain it, is living faith produces living works. If our faith is in God and we're walking with God, it will produce a changed life. So if we say we know something but don't do it, it can only mean that we really don't care about it or it's simply not important enough for us to put into action. And it says, to him it is sin. So I want to explain this again using a parable. I'm using a lot of parables today, but Jesus is pretty good at explaining things, so I'm relying on him a bit today. Luke 12, 42-48. And the Lord replied, A faithful, sensible servant is one to whom the master can give the responsibility of managing his other household servants and feeding them. If the master returns and finds that the servant has done a good job, there will be a reward. I tell you the truth, the master will put that servant in charge of all he owns. But what if the servant thinks, my master won't be back for a while, and begins beating the other servants, partying and getting drunk. The master will return unannounced and unexpected, and he will cut the servant in pieces and banish him with the unfaithful. And a servant who knows what the master wants, but isn't prepared, and doesn't carry out those instructions, will be severely punished. But someone who does not know, and then does something wrong, will be punished only lightly. When someone has been given much, much will be required in return. And when someone has been entrusted with much, even more will be required. So I'm going to read those last two verses, verses 47 and 48 again. And a servant who knows what the master wants, 
but isn't prepared and doesn't carry out those instructions will be severely punished. But someone who does not know and then does something wrong will be punished only lightly. When someone has been given much, much will be required in return. And when someone has been entrusted with much, even more will be required. So again, greater light, greater revelation means greater responsibility. Now we know what to do, we need to do it. And as Spurgeon said one time, the sermon is said, but the sermon is not done. So, this week, let us resolve to submit any area of our life that is dominated by a sinful nature to the Lord as we draw near to Him. God has made the time for us. Will we make the time for Him? So the more we abide in the Lord, walking by faith, walking by the power of the Spirit, in obedience to His Word, in obedience to His daily will for our lives, then the greater the joy, love and peace of the Lord we will enjoy now. And the greater victory we will have over sin. So, remember how James says, don't turn away from the mirror, forget what you look like. Stay in front of the mirror. We're not being vain. We're remembering what God is wanting to say to us. We're remembering how God wants to change us. We're remembering the parts of us that need changing. And God cleans us up as we stay in his word and stay in fellowship with him. Before I pray, I'm just going to read a couple of verses out from James, just to summarize. But he gives more grace, therefore he says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Lament and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning, and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he will lift you up. Lord, I do pray that we can put this into practice this week, or that we can make the time to be in your presence, to be in your word, to allow you to change us, and that we would humble ourselves, we would submit to you, we would say, not my will, but yours be done. Lord, I understand that although I really like some of the things that I'm doing, I know they're wrong, I know they hurt you, I want to stop. I choose to stop. I choose to submit to you. I choose to do things your way and not my way. And we'll be blessed, abundantly blessed, by a deeper and more intimate relationship with you. Please help us to do this in Jesus' name. Amen.